All right. So today I'd like to welcome Dr. Mink Chawla. He's an internationally renowned expert in the field of acute kidney injury and is an active investigator in the fields of inflammation and AKI, AKI uh, biomarkers, risk prediction, chronic kidney disease caused by AKI, and AKI uh, therapeutics. Additionally, Dr. Chawla is an active investigator in shock, inflammation, and extracorporeal therapies, including CRRT, dialysis, albumin dialysis, and his work has re resulted in over 100 peer-reviewed publications. In June of 2015, Dr. Chawla received the International Vicenza Award for Critical Care Nephrology, which recognizes individuals who have made seminal clinical research advancements that have significantly improved the care of critically ill patients with acute kidney injury around the world. The award was earned with his contributions to the development of the renal angina model, the development and standardization of the furosemide stress test, the link between AKI and CKD, and the use of angiotensin II in the treatment of high output shock. He is a professor of critical care medicine just down the road at George Washington University. He's currently uh, on a year sabbatical uh, from there. He's the former chief of the Division of Intensive Care Medicine in the Washington, D.C. Uh, Veterans Affairs Medical Center. And while on faculty there over the past multiple years, he designed and led a pilot study called the ATHOS um, trial, uh, which stands for angiotensin II for the treatment of high output shock. It was published in Journal of Critical Care and demonstrated the utility of angiotensin II in patients with severe shock. These data were used in support of the initiation of the ATHOS III trial, a phase three clinical trial of the angiotensin II formulation for the treatment of catecholamine-resistant hypotension. Um, and uh, we actually are a site for that trial. He now serves as a CMO of La Jolla Pharmaceutical Company, which is the maker of the medication used in that, in that study. Well, this evening, we warmly welcome Dr. Chala to Baltimore to our chapter meeting of, of SCCM to talk about the hemodynamic pathophysiology of septic shock and about his research surrounding the use of alternative vasopressor therapy for its management. So thank you kindly, Dr. Chala, for joining us. Well, thank you for that incredibly elaborate introduction. I was not anticipating that. Um, <clears throat> it's really a pleasure to be here. It's nice to see lots of friends and Colleagues of mine, I'm currently on sabbatical, and I'll sort of discuss uh, some important disclosures right off the bat. I'm currently on sabbatical as the chief medical officer of La Jolla Pharmaceutical, and I'm an employee there right now. So, you know, in order to sort of keep this relevant for everyone, I'm going to talk a little bit about the approach to shock, and I think people are going to say, oh boy, that sounds boring, and I hope to sort of simulate some thoughts about um, how this can be done a little bit better. Um, current vasopressor use, where we are, and some ideas about new vasopressors that are currently under development. Now, everyone knows this. This is a seminal teaching to every intern who does their ICU rotation, and we tell them shock is not always hypotension, blah, blah, blah. But real shock is almost always patients who are profoundly hypotensive, and that is what most of us in the business end of taking care of our patients who are really sick and profoundly hypotensive. Which is not to say that early shock isn't important and that measuring lactates and doing all these things aren't critical, but really at the end of the day, this is a cardinal manifestation of people who are severely ill. And everyone knows this and everyone has been taught this, but the reason I leave the wheel Schubert model up is because my fellows, when they first start training, are not in the habit of diagnosing shock. They recognize shock, 
but they don't diagnose shock. And I'm going to explain and hopefully make the case for why I think this should be done in a more objective way, more routinely. So I'm going to share with you a very important bias that I have. I believe in defending blood pressure. So if you are on service with me and someone's MAP is below 60, it is an emergency. Now, if it's Michael Phelps and, you know, he's a UTI or prostatitis or I don't know what, you can make the case that his resting heart rate and blood pressure are probably at a place where 55 is okay. But if you don't know this person at all, I am unwilling to accept a MAP of below 65. And I believe you should defend blood pressure. And I advocate this. And true hypotension is an emergency. This is not a, I mean, I remember distinctly when I'm running with my nephrology service, I ran with my team and, hey, how's this guy doing? He's on CRT, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, well, you know, it happens some trouble. His map's like 52 right now, but, they're, you know, they're going to get some fluid or something. And I'm like, stop everything. Go in the room and fix the patient. Fix them now. So when I was a fellow and I'm on service, I carried phenylephrine. And when I was attending, I carried phenylephrine. Because you go to the floor, some patient is crumping, you know, and you get there and they're like, what's the blood pressure? Oh, it's 70 over 30. What are you doing? I just asked the nurse to go get me some levofed. Well, that should take around 20 minutes. What could possibly happen in 20 minutes? Well, the answer is a lot and none of it good. So they say, well, the patient's volume depleted. Yeah, I agree they're volume depleted. Let's defend their blood pressure now. Why is this so important? And it's because of this. Now, if you don't think this is real, Ask an anesthesiologist who was planning on reading a very nice paperback for a long four-hour spine case. They put their paperback down. They're getting ready. They look at their... So here's what happens in the OR, for those of you who don't spend a lot of time in the OR. When you pre-oxygenate a person with normal lungs, they have so much oxygen in their FRC, you can paralyze the patient, leave the room, get a cup of coffee, brew it, come back and the patient will not drop their sats. That's for a healthy person who has reasonably good lungs. And so there's this sort of, I can give this resident of mine a long time to try and get this airway. So, you know, they kind of relax, everything's okay. But when you induce them and you drop their blood pressure, one in around 500 times they code. And the reason they code is because you perfuse your coronaries in diastole. And if you drop below a certain threshold, this happens and this happens fast. And you don't always get those people back. And even if you do, if you've jacked up their brain, you probably haven't done anyone any favors. So this is a strong bias that I'm beginning with, but I believe very vigorously in defending blood pressure. So MAP matters. Now, we know that hypotension, in very short periods of hypotension, are very dangerous. Right? And we know which organs are primarily at risk. Well, I'm a nephrologist as well as an intensivist. You know, I'm very interested in acute kidney injury, so this is an important area for us. And this is beyond the cardiology consult for the perioperative case of avoid hypotension. That goes in the duh category. Right? I mean, we all know that, but operationalizing that is really quite something different. Now, the question I get from my fellows quite routinely is, why is the map of 60 or 65 the target? It's a pretty good question, because 90 over 60 is not a map of 65. That's like a map closer to 70 or 73, depending on what equation you're using, whether you're using an A-line, Dynamap, whatever. So why is it actually almost 10 millimeters below? Mostly because the gods of critical care said that's what it ought to be. Now, there's around three papers now, all from Dan Zessel's group in the Cleveland Clinic. Now, I interviewed at the Cleveland Clinic some years ago for a job, 
And while I was there at the Cleveland Clinic, I noticed this giant board with all these dots moving on it. And then I kind of noticed one of the dots had my name on it. I'm like, what is that? And they're like, oh, everyone here is tracked in real time. Your visitor ID has an RFID tag in it, and you're being tracked in real time. And I'm like, everyone who works here is tracked every minute of every day that they're here? They're like, oh, absolutely. I'm like, and do you kind of like clock them in and clock them out? Do you figure out how much time they're in the bathroom? And they're like, well, we don't know if they do that. But you know, who cares? And I'm like, I kind of do. You know, and maybe it's my phenotype and the time I spend with the TSA, but I really worry about the NSA and people being in my stuff. So suffice to say, I didn't go to the Cleveland Clinic. And it has something to do with Cleveland as well, to be fair. But, but the point being is that the Cleveland Clinic, every piece of data is measured all the time. And that allows for a very interesting analysis. So in the ORs, they data warehouse all the blood pressures for every operative patient every day, every minute. So this allows us, allows them and Dan Zessler's group to do this analysis. And what they find quite unsurprisingly is that when you drop below a map of 60 or 65, bad things begin to happen. This is for acute kidney injury and this is for myocardial events. So it turns out the gods of critical care were right. 60 to 65 in a population when you don't know who the person is or what their deal is, is the number. They have now published four papers in this space. So this signal is everywhere. Here's what's really impressive. When you compare it to zero minutes of hypotension, defined by a map less than 55, one to five minutes in a multivariate statistical event gives you worse outcomes. And it's stepwise, one to five minutes. So here's what drives me crazy when I'm on service. I come on service, I get signed out, and they go, how's Mr. Jones doing? Ah, he's not doing that great. He's on a buttload of Levo, I want to get him with some Bezo, I think I'll give him some Epi. I'm like, yeah, the Epi's going to fix him. Because his alpha receptor is not getting enough action. Let's definitely give him the Epi. What's his blood pressure? Ah, he's like 55, hanging out at 55. You know, he's doing his thing. Um, and I go, well, what are you guys doing about it? Well, you know, we're lowering our standards, basically. Now, look, if it's midnight at the bar, I'm all for lowering your standards. But I am not okay with lowering your standards for blood pressure. So now I inherit Mr. Jones, who's had 10 hours of hypotension. I mean, am I going to fix his mitochondria? Am I going to drop a CRISPR and do some gene therapy on that guy? No, I've inherited a total mess. So we, at least, when I was at GW, I'm on sabbatical now, so I should be careful about my sort of uh, you know, pluralistic pronouns. But nonetheless, my point here is that I think there's very good data that demonstrate that hypotension in short periods is very problematic. And not surprisingly, the events are quite stepwise. And notice that they're in minutes, not hours. Okay, so I want to make the case about diagnosing shock. And here is a real case. This is a case that I was a consultant on uh, as a medical legal expert. He's a 53-year-old physician who underwent a rheumatoid gastric bypass some years ago and presented with ventral hernia, underwent an uncomplicated repair. So post-operative day one, he comes out looking a little inflammatory, he's tachycardic, his white count bumps a little bit, he's mildly hypotensive, they give him some salt water in his vein, and he looks a little bit better. So he's still intubated, he's you know, obviously an obese guy, he's stout, 
And they're like, yeah, let's just give him another day, let him settle out, maybe he has some atelectasis, who knows. Post-operative day two, he's still hypotensive. Now he's on some vasopressor, and um, they're like, yeah, maybe we nix something, let's go. They CT him, the CT's pristine, his belly looks great. So everyone's like, well, what's going on? Well, I don't know, maybe he's having a UTI, could he have prostatitis, they give him broad-spectrum antibiotics, and they're like, give him a day to settle out. And on the evening of post-operative day two, his white count goes to 24, he's still febrile, now he's on Levo, now he's on Vaso, and they're going to cure him with Epi. So they give him Epi, because, you know, it's God's inotrope. And uh, they do a Doppler, there's no DVT, uh, and then he codes and dies. So what happened to this poor gentleman was that when they put the vicral mesh in, they caught a staple on his pericardium. And it filled up with blood, and he died. But he looked like a septic patient. He would have fooled all of us, including myself. Because he looked septic, he had an exposure that looked septic, didn't have a great case for a VTE, and he died of unrecognized tamponade. Here's the lesson. Seasoned clinicians get burned all the time. It happens all the time. It's not frequent, but it does happen. You must diagnose shock. If someone is on a dose of vasopressure that makes your attending increase their anal tone, you need to diagnose their shock. And it can't be, it smells like sepsis. I think it's blah, blah, blah. What if it's mixed shock? You don't know. Physical exam is completely useless for intravascular volume assessment. That's been demonstrated. The x-ray is also useless. Ultrasound's pretty good. CVP, mostly useless. Right? This is well demonstrated. There's plenty of evidence for this. You guys are all aware of this. And so this is the simple rule I teach my first-year newbie fellows. Defend MAP. I don't care if they're hemorrhaging. You can give them a little phenylephrine until someone goes down and gives you some O-negative blood. Don't be a purist. Oh, it's bleeding. What they need is blood. The Brickle data was negative, by the way, for those of you who are familiar with it, after the reanalysis where they actually did the proper intent-to-treat analysis. Sorry, Dr. Maddox. But, I mean, that is a negative trial. Hypotension is not okay. Defend, resuscitate. Get an objective assessment of cardiac output. I don't care how you do it. You can do it with an echo. You can do it with a flow track. You can do it with a lidco. You can do it with a pico. I don't care what you do. Get some objective measure of cardiac output and make sure you're not being fooled. So there's a group of you in the room who are a bit younger, who don't know who Bruce Springsteen or the Beatles' White Album is. There's this thing called a PA catheter. You may have heard of it. We used to use it a long time ago. We don't use it that much anymore. Even that can be used to give you a cardiac output measure, but ignore the wedge because it's mostly useless. Okay? I don't care how you do it. Diagnose your shock. It, it, just trust me if you, just, if you don't believe me, and I can't give you the reams of data because I want to talk about other stuff. If you diagnose shock on a routine basis, even borrow the sonocyte and just take a quick look and look at their LV cavity. Because if it's thin and their cordae are kissing, you've probably needed looking somewhere else after you've given them the five liters, which you've already hit them with. Especially if they're on Buku vasopressor. Right? You don't miss the hemorrhagic shock because eventually someone gets a CBC and they figure out, oh, the hemoglobin's two, okay, we should do something. But the way you get burned is almost always PE and tamponade that masquerades as inflammation. Now, this is essentially the toolbox that we have had for 65 years. 
There isn't a single vasopressor for shock, because terlipressin's kind of available for hepatorenal syndrome. That has been approved by any regulatory agency in the world. All of these were inherited in. So the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, the FDA was created. There was all these drugs that had existed for forever. They just grandfathered them in. All of your vasopressors are being grandfathered in. So there's nothing new. We're using the same stuff. And so we keep testing the same stuff over and over again. All of you are familiar with the VAST trial. This is Jim Russell's group with the Canadian Clinical Trials Group. And all of you are aware of this data. I'm going to just go through some highlights of it to sort of make the case on where I think we are and what we need to be doing. So most people say this is a negative study because the p-value is 0.10. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time discussing Bayesian statistics versus frequentist statistics. I look at this and I see an underpowered trial because those two lines are continuing to widen. And I think if they had doubled their patient population, that becomes statistically significant. They're never going to do that second big study. And you say, okay, let's go look at our subsets. Okay, well, here you go. It turns out that the lower severity group gets a mortality benefit and the higher severity group does worse, which is the opposite of their a priori hypothesis. No one really knows what this means. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But what it does suggest is that there's a subset of patients in whom vasopressin is thoughtful. We just don't know who they are. So they did a second study where they looked at the interaction between vasopressin and corticosteroids, and there is, in fact, an interaction. So if you got hydrocortisone, you actually do better, and it's statistically significant. If you didn't get steroids, you do worse, and it's statistically significant. So you can say, hey, this is really simple. If they get steroids, they do well in vasopressin. If they don't get steroids, don't give them vasopressin, right? Easy peasy, lemon squeezy, except for the fact that it's not so simple. And the reason for that is because there's an interaction. There's a confounder, which is there's a reason why someone gave them the steroids in the first place. You don't give steroids to patients, typically, who are not that sick. We usually wait until someone is in trouble. So the indication bias, selection bias for the steroid interaction is indeterminate. Moreover, hydrocortisone interacts with vasopressin catabolism and function. So no one really is sure what to make of this. Now, what people typically say when they look at something like this is that, well, you should do another bigger trial, but no one's going to do another bigger trial of this. So it leaves us in this quandary of people who believe in vasopressin and people who don't. And now that vasopressin is more expensive, the believers are fewer and far between, which is, I guess, predictable. But it's not data-driven to a certain degree, and some of it is basically, you know, how do you feel about it? Who in the room uses vasopressin routinely? All right, so it's about 60-40, about okay? We have no positive data to drive this. I think we'd all agree with that, right? I mean, I, I don't see positive data. It's what we do it anyway. So... We don't know what to do with vasopressin, and we continue to do studies comparing different catecholamines to each other. Now, I've shared with you a couple of biases. To me, comparing all these catecholamines to each other all the time is comparing orange juice with various, various levels of pulp for health. It may make a difference, but they're not that different from each other, because the last time I checked, they're hitting the same two receptors. So how much alpha-beta can we sort of mess around with? And the problem I have with this study is the dopamine dose range for hitting alpha or beta is not really accounted for. So you're really not studying a physiologic rationale. It's not like you compared phenylephrine to norepinephrine. 
which you could say, okay, is it alpha? Do you need the beta? That's a reasonable sort of study. They've compared epinephrine to dobutamine plus norepinephrine, no difference. And similarly, what they found here is that it turns out that norepinephrine may be a little bit better for you. It's kind of statistically significant, but not quite, depending on how much of a frequentist you are. And the people who've been using the most dopamine, the cardiologists, it turns out, were using the wrong vasopressor. And they still use dopamine. And if you're a cardiac surgeon, you still use dopamine, even though all the data suggests it doesn't help you but give AFib, but they still believe in it. Dopamine is the, is, is the vampire that will not die, right? No matter how many wooden stakes you put in the heart of dopamine, it will continue to come back. Now, I am not saying you should never use dopamine. You have a patient who's in shock and they're bradycardic, dopamine's a perfectly reasonable drug because they probably need a little bit of chronotrope. So the, these large-scale trials completely remove individualization. And that's my major, my major beef with them. So I'm going to give you a slightly different take on this. I want you to imagine a large clinical trial that we're all designing together, and you guys are all the funders. And I come to you and I say, okay, here's the plan. We're going to take a cohort of prostate cancer, ovarian cancer, breast cancer, and lung cancer, and I'm going to give all of these patients cytoxan, dexamethasone, and vincristine. And I'm going to do a randomized control trial, and I'm going to go Aussie style. I'm going to go big, 50,000 people. And I'm going to give everyone either this cocktail or nothing. Is that going to be a positive study? No. Then we'll do a multivariate analysis. And what we'll show is that elderly men who are estrogen receptor positive do the best because the multivariate analysis doesn't actually do classes. It just picks the variables to show up in a large set. And then we redo the trial on the transgender patients in the population, and they don't do well either, right? So my problem fundamentally with all of our shock trials and all of our sepsis trials is they're completely phenotype ignorant. We would never run a cancer trial that way. We run every single critical care trial that way because they're all the same. Their genetics are the same, their exposures are the same, the level of liver function is the same, their CKD is the same. They're all the same, so just give them the same ever thing and let's see what happens. And then you hope the multivariate analysis gives you your answer, and it never does. And when it does it, it's called overfitting. When you overfit something which can't exist. Overfitting is statistical jargon for it's wrong, and you got faked out. This is never going to work. This is not going to work because within sepsis, sepsis is a syndrome. ARDS is a syndrome. Acute kidney injury is a syndrome. It's not a disease. And within those syndromes exist discrete phenotypes. I'll give you a better example. Breast cancer. In breast cancer, we have the tissue in every woman who undergoes a mastectomy. We know the DNA. We know if it's introductal. We know if, if it's what kind of cell type they have, none of those things matter. The only thing that matters if you're HER2 positive, estrogen or progesterone receptor. That's it. Those receptors being positive drives everything. It is a treatment phenotype. We are not doing that in critical care. I think we have an enormous amount to learn from oncologists about phenotyping. Here is your toolbox. What's in orange or yellow, depending on how it is uh, presenting, is what's new. And I'm going to spend the next 20 minutes talking about these two new vasopressors, and hopefully we'll have some questions at the end. 
So something new, something old, sort of the precedent is new, angiotensin II is very old. And this is based on the idea that vasopressin is a native vasopressor, the body uses a vasopressor, but vasopressin also has other receptors that it hits. So it hits VA1, V1B, V2, and oxytocin. And oxytocin is a bit of a vasodilating effect. So the idea is that maybe we can tweak this and use serlopressin, which is a VA1 agonist. And it selectively hits VA1, which is primarily where its vasoconstrictive properties exist. Now, this, this is not, now sorry, this is not projecting well. But one big reason, too, is that arginine vasopressin increases your coagulation factors. And the other big thing which is important is that there's this issue about its potency and its selectivity. And so this is what the two molecules look like, and this is where they're different. So they're incredibly similar, but these mild differences allow you to hit the VA1 agonism highly selectively. Now, because V2, which is DDABP essentially, is not targeted, you tend to get better free water clearance. Now, you think to yourself, oh, we give them diuretics, that's probably pretty good, but the animal model suggests the free water clearance issue is not insignificant. And this free water may contribute to lung injury. And that is one of the reasons why there's so much interest in celopressin. In addition, there is survival benefit in large mammal models. I mean, I don't want to get too excited about this because we've all been faked out and seen drugs work in large, you know, pig models and sheep models and even dog models, and they don't translate. But, you know, you have to start somewhere for safety. And what you do see is a pretty consistent signal with celopressin. But I think this is what's interesting to me, is durably in the trials, you see less lung edema. And much of this is thought to be due to this clearance of free water issue. Now, because water moves so rapidly between its compartments, it's a little bit tough to do this, unless you're giving deuterium to animals, which no one really does anymore, because it's a really hard analysis. And when they have capillary leak, it's very hard to sort out. But this, to me, I think is potentially attractive, especially if it's early in an ARDS patient. The other thing which is becoming interesting is that there is some data to suggest that vasopressin may actually attenuate vascular capillary leak. Now, this does not appear to be driven by endothelial glycocalyx or endothelial dysfunction per se. We're not really sure why this happens. It may be due to post, excuse me, precapillary sphincter tone, and I'll show you some, some ideas about that. But nonetheless, you consistently look at urine output and survival, you see a better profile with celopressin. And so this is now undergoing a large phase 2B clinical trial. This is currently ongoing with a company called Fering. They're a Danish company, and it's being led by Derek Angus. And what they're doing is an adaptive design. So what that basically means is you take a large group and you give all these various doses. And then you do sequential interim analyses to see if any of the doses are either causing harm or a bad safety signal or they're highly ineffectual, and then you censor them as you go. So you'll start with six arms or eight arms or however many you want to start with, and then you basically delete them until you get down to two therapeutic arms and one placebo arm. And the advantage of this is that instead of having to do a primary dose-finding study to fir to first, you do a dose-finding study and you get a clinical readout, and then you roll the phase two with these dose groups directly into your phase three. And this is an appropriate and a reasonable approach that the FDA will accept. So I, I give Derek a lot of credit for putting together an adaptive design and getting a reasonable regulatory path forward. So 
I'm going to spend the next little bit of time talking about angiotensin II. This is an area which I've had a fair amount of experience recently. There's nothing new about ang 2 The first shock trial for angiotensin II was in 1961, and it worked in 1961. It worked really quite well, in fact. So it went away, and we can talk about why it may have gone away, but I think fundamentally it begs the question, do we need another vasopressor? Arguably, what we have is enough. Now, I would challenge the notion that we have enough based on a simple fact. All of us have taken care of a patient who is profoundly septic or profoundly inflammatory. You walk in, they're on 10 of norepinephrine, then they're on 20, you give them some vasopressin, then they're on 40, 60, epi, and then comes the voodoo. Methylene blue, ibuprofen, B12, maybe some calcium, maybe more bicarb. Everyone's got their own voodoo. I've been doing this for 15 years, so my voodoo is better than your voodoo, in case you were wondering about that. And then we all do the same thing. We go out and we tell the family that their loved one's going to die. And then we put on a morphine drip and they die. And none of these patients get coded as refractory hypotension. They get coded for the underlying disease, pancreatitis, sepsis, pneumonia, whatever. Those are all hypotensive deaths. Every single one of you who spent any time in an ICU has taken care of a patient who has simply outrun you. This has happened to all of us. And the question is, is, does the addition of another vasopressor make a difference? Well, maybe. But the primary bias that I bring to the table and the people who are working with me on this endeavor have is simply this. Evolution, or God, depending on your spiritual preference, is not an accident. There are no accidents. Evolution is incredibly efficient. If you ever have a chance to go to the Galapagos Islands, and I suggest you do, it's a great trip, and based on your science background, you'll be delighted to know two things. One, there are tortoises on the island that are over 200 years old that were there when Darwin was there, which is kind of cool. The other thing which is really cool is that you can notice the difference in the finches and the beaks of the finches, and the beaks on the finches is precisely the size that it needs to be to get the seed that it needs to have on that island to live. And the beaks are very different. And if the beak is too small or if it's too long, it's zero sum. Evolution is mostly zero sum. Another good example of this is resistant bacteria. So if you gain resistance, so if you take a very good example of this, which is Acidetobacter balmani, which probably many of you have taken care of, it's pan-resistant. Almost all gram-negative organisms that acquire full resistance lose virulence. So in order to get the resistance, they give up some fitness. Why does this happen? Is because gaining resistance is biologically not revenue neutral. It costs money to alter your RNA. It costs money to change your ribosome. Some of these things are free. Some of these things you can get from a plasmid, but the vast majority of advances in resistance cost you biologically either energy, metabolism, something. So there's a reason why we have the vasopressors we have in our body. And that is a bias that I bring to the table. So our primary hypothesis is simply this. There's nobody who any of you have ever taken care of with hypertension, no matter how bad their hypertension, who's on two grams of metoprolol BID. That's not how we take care of these people. You put them on some metoprolol, and they fail that, and they're usually young African-American men. And then you start them on a thiazide, and then you start them on an ACE inhibitor, and then you start them on a calcium channel blocker, and we believe in synergy. We believe in keeping patients in their therapeutic window and out of their toxicity window, 
and that these things work together and give you a durable improvement. We believe the same thing happens with hypotension. And that's a reason why these three vasopressors are in your body. It's not an accident. Also, catecholamines are prone to tachyphylaxis, and we know that high-dose catecholamines have significant toxicity. The second area is very nephrocentric. So you guys were all taught in your fellowships that the reason why you get, well, back in the day, it was acute renal failure or acute tubular necrosis. But because the cardiologist changed the name of MI from Q-wave, non-Q-wave MI to STEMI and N-STEMI, we felt the need to get back at them. So we changed acute renal failure and acute tubular necrosis to acute kidney injury. How's that working for you guys? You like AKI? Cool? Facebook, Snapchat, cool? Or just, you know, okay? I'm joking, of course. We didn't do it for that reason. But it has changed the nomenclature. But we were all taught that the reason why you got whatever you want to call it is because it decreased blood flow to the kidney. And that is completely wrong. In animal models and in humans, and this has been demonstrated in humans, a resuscitated distributive shock person has increased, increased, not decreased perfusion to their kidney. The blood flow is higher than normal. And when you give them angiotensin too, it gets better, at least in animals. And that's what Ronaldo basically showed. And something about shock, something about distributive shock causes efferent vasodilation. And when you give them angiotensin too, the urine output gets better, and the creatinine clearance improves. And something about ANG2 appears to work in a beneficial way in the microcirculation. And one of the things which is really interesting is that I always thought the glomerulus was a very special uh, and unique type of structure. And it is in many ways. And we know that norepinephrine and vasopressin cause afferent vasoconstriction whereas angiotensin II causes efferent vasoconstriction predominantly. And every nephrologist knows this, and this is the basis for ACE inhibitors, Brenner hypothesis, on and on it goes. Well, it turns out that your afferent arterial and your efferent arterial are homologous to your precapillary sphincter and your postcapillary sphincter. And the vasopressors work in the exact same way. Norepinephrine, vasopressin cause precapillary sphincter vasoconstriction. They cause capillary derecruitment whereas angiotensin II causes capillary recruitment. These data were published when I was one and three, respectively. So all this stuff that I'm learning about angiotensin II is not anything new. It's going backwards in time. So I was telling Jim Tumlin, a good friend of mine, about sort of some of the stuff I was running across. He said, you know, Mink, if you ever thought you had an original idea in your life, it's because you don't read German. And the point here is lots of stuff has been done already. We just forgot about it. Now, you can imagine, for those people who are knowledgeable about the whole microcirculatory argument and the data, that capillary recruitment would be a really good thing. But I'm not here to tell you that angiotensin II is going to be working for everybody or that it should be used to recruit everyone, meaning their capillaries, because you can imagine a scenario where too much angiotensin II would actually have edema formation associated with it. So you want perfusion, but you don't want perfusion to the point where it causes edema. And this is almost certainly how the body calibrates perfusion natively with its three large sets of tools, catecholamines, vasopressin, and angiotensins. And I think that we, as intensivists, should be using the same tools that the body uses on a routine basis. And this led us to running a pilot study. This is an incredibly modest study of 20 patients. 
Um, and the goal here was to ascertain the starting dose. And what we basically showed, and I won't spend an enormous time on this, was that low doses of angiotensin II were very effective at causing catecholamine sparing. So what you're looking at at the blue is the placebo arm and the red is the A2 arm. And even though it says it happens over an hour, it happens over two minutes where you see this immediate improvement in blood pressure that allows you to scale back on the norepinephrine titrating to a clinical map of 65. Angiotensin II is a 30-second half-life, so it has a nice on-off effect to it, and when you turn it off, it goes away. The, the thing that was very interesting about this study was there was two outliers. So all of you who were in the ICU have worked with a nurse who's been in your ICU for 25-plus years, and usually you're warned about this nurse when you're a fellow about never go against this nurse. She's always right. And then most fellows ignore that and get decapitated by him or her, but usually her. And they just know the answer. They're always right because they've been doing it for so long. And, you know, I tell my fellows that, look, if you're going to say no, in our case, there was a nurse named Mel, at least wait 30 seconds before you say no. At least have the impression like you're thinking about it. And in those 30 seconds, you should probably think about it because she's probably going to be right. So in this third patient I enrolled in this trial, Mel was the nurse, and you know, it was an investigator-initiated study, so I got my clipboard, I'm trying to get my data together, you know, the phone's going off, I'm dealing with nonsense. And she goes, what do you want to do? The map just went to 110. I said, you're screwing up my study, Mel. What are you doing? The A-line, did you put the transducer on the ground? Like, what is going on in there? And she gave me a look that only a nurse who's been doing critical care for 30 years can give a person. It usually is a look that tells you that if I had a gun, you'd be dead. But now I'm imagining a hundred different ways I'll kill you. And we got into a nice 60-second classic attending nurse argument, which resulted in me putting on polyester because it was a MRSA patient going in and checking it myself. And sure enough, the transducer was exactly where it was supposed to be. And then I went and got a cuff and took the blood pressure myself. And there's this thing for the young people in the room that there's this mercury, it goes up, and you, you, you like squeeze it a couple of times. Um, and I'll, we'll talk about the Beatles' White Album labor, but there's all these really cool things that happened a long time ago. And I took the cuff pressure myself, and it was 110. The map was 110. I'm like, what is going on? So the patient was on 30 of Levo, 2530. We go to zero. The patient's map goes from 110 to 95, 90-ish. Take the study drug. I was blinded at the time, but not stupid. And took it to the lowest dose from the protocol, and the patient was still hypertensive. So... Didn't know what to do, so I stopped the study early. The, vas the vasopressor needs of the noradrenaline come right back, and I reported it as an adverse event. So in this paper, there's two, pa two patients who have hypertension as an adverse event in a shock trial, which is pretty uncommon. So, you know, we, we really couldn't figure this out, and then we kind of arrived at the idea that these patients must have been exposed to an ACE inhibitor prior to getting sick. And that was a pretty good idea because the, one of the patients was a diabetic with CKD, the other one had congestive, a mild congestive heart failure, it was a class two heart, but had, had a previous admission for CHF. So I wrote this in the discussion section of the pilot that this is almost certainly an ACE exposure, which would give you a good rationale for why they're so ANG2 sensitive because their HDR1 receptor would be massively upregulated. So one of the reviewers um, wrote back and said, you know, well, were they on ACE inhibitors or not? I mean, can you document it? And I wrote back, I'm like, this is America, man. 
like it's a mess here with the medical system. I got I got nephrologists over here. I got cardiologists over there. The charts aren't aligned. I mean, this is not Europe where it's all one big system. I'm not in the VA. I, you know, it's a mess. And he goes, yeah, that's great. Go back and document whether they're on ACE or not. So I sent my fellow and a medical student, and I said, look, just go to the charts, go to the cardiologist, go to the you know, nephrologist charts, visit the primary care office, and just grab their chart and see if they're on an ACE. Even if they were prescribed an ACE, we can, we can use that. So they went back, and they called me back, and they go, there's no ACE exposure. And I'm like, have you read the discussion? This is approved with minor changes. This is the only thing holding up the publication of this pilot that took me five years to do. Take two more medical students, go to CVS, go to the Walgreens, go to Rite Aid, I don't care, find me the ACE inhibitors. They go and they came back and they're like, yeah, um, it's not there. So now, if I had just been lazy, right, I could have just said we don't know. But then we were like, we really can't document it. I mean, we looked pretty hard. They probably weren't on it. So then we had to write this goofy sentence in the discussion, which is like, we're pretty sure it's an ACE inhibitors, but we really can't find them, so we don't know what this is, which is really not an elegant discussion in a paper. It's really bothered me. So I think most of you would have figured this out a lot faster than I would have, but as a nephrologist, you know, I give so much ACE inhibition out. You could actually, I should gener generate the random ACE inhibitor you know, uh, app on my phone where it just has P-R-I-L and you just hit a button and you get an L, Lysin or whatever, and you just give the prill of the day. So you would think I would know a lot about ACE inhibitors, and I thought that I did, but I had forgotten something which you guys all know, which is that ACE lives in your lung, almost exclusively in your lung. And not only does it live in your lung, it lives on the pulmonary capillary endothelium. So then I said, well, if it lives in the pulmonary capillary endothelium, how can you get angiotensin II deficiency? Because the dose that we were using that generated the hypertension was replacement dose. So if I took all of you and I took away your ability to make angiotensin II, I would need to give you around five nanograms per kilo per minute to get your basal dose the way it ought to be. And that was the dose that we were using and getting a hypertensive response. So it speaks to deficiency. So then we said, well, what diseases give you endothelial injury? Well, we know ARDS does. So we went back to the chart, and both patients had profound ARDS. So then we decided we were going to try and do a study where we look at ACE function as a sequence of severity of ARDS. And we found this paper in this very obscure journal called Circulation, and this study was actually done in the year 2000. And what they demonstrate quite beautifully is that as your lung injury score goes up, your ability to convert angiotensin one, angiotensin two goes away. So severe ARDS causes angiotensin two deficiency. So you know Jean-Louis Vincent was very kind to me. We wrote a letter back to the editor, critiquing our own original paper, saying that original hypothesis we had was mostly wrong. And we got this really new idea, which I think is better. What do you think? And he said, I'll publish it. And this is basically what we think is going on. So no matter what your insult is, uh, aspiration, trauma, sepsis, whatever, if it generates ARDS with significant endothelial injury, you lose your ACE activity. And this has been demonstrated in not just that circulation paper, although it's probably the best one of its kind, because they use an ACE gold standard and they use a really high level of certainty with their analysis. 
you get either angiotensin II insufficiency or deficiency. And I can assure you that if you're angiotensin II deficient, you're catecholamine resistant, and you're going to get acute kidney injury because you cannot defend intraglomerular pressure effectively without angiotensin II. So our general conclusions of this are that we think that ANG2 has a role as a rescue vasopressor. There's actually case reports that have demonstrated this from the 1970s, a few in the 1980s as well. Um, in the interest of time, I haven't shown you all that data. Um, it may be particularly useful in patients with ARDS because of the physiology of ACE. And we're currently undergoing a phase three registration trial for angiotensin II as a vasopressor. And the primary endpoint is change in mean arterial pressure. We will look at organ function, we'll certainly look at mortality, but it's not powered for mortality. This is not an antisepsis drug. It is a trial as a vasopressor. And because no other vasopressor has ever been approved, this represents the first of its kind for the FDA. And so this has been an interesting journey with them. Um, and we're currently well on our way, and uh, I'm really pleased that uh, Mike and the crew here is uh, a site for us. So we're going to be looking, as I said, at mean arterial pressure. We'll look at a lot of relevant secondary endpoints. Um, and if you kind of look at the landscape, there are some new, I mean, new-ish angiotensin II. It's kind of forgotten and new, depending on how you want to do it. If you sort of take the French approach, instead of resuscitation, they call it reanimation, right? We're kind of like digging this thing up out of the grave. But we do think it has a lot of value, and some of the physiology speaks to it. And with that, uh, I'll stop, and I'm delighted to take questions for the final 10 minutes. Thank you. Yes? Yeah, so I think that's a really important question. The answer is I have no magic solution for them. You know, John Inchi has done some beautiful work on this mitochondrial dysfunction syndrome, and I actually don't think the mitochondria personally are dysfunctional. Mitochondria adapt very well to the oxygen tension that they have, and they can go into a hibernation-type mode very easily. And they were single-cell molecules that lived a long time before we became higher mammals. And what you can demonstrate very nicely is you can take mitochondria and all sorts of tissue, drop the oxygen transport into the tissue, and as long as the tissue is not ischemic and it doesn't die, but it's just low oxygen tension, they actually adjust and decrease their oxygen consumption. It's not fixed. And then when you increase the oxygen availability, it goes back up again. And I think that what you're seeing in that increased lactase is microcirculatory defect. So Nate Shapiro did a microcirculation trial uh, in process and, you know, he's been a little bit, you know, edgy about this, but it looks like microcirculatory defect is going to predict survival in large cohorts. DeBacher and Jean-Louis have shown this already. And so I think that what you see with that increased mixed venous saturation, even though we think that's appropriate resuscitation, I think that's all shunting. I think it's all microcirculatory defect. And I think that one of the things we need to get a lot better at is diagnosing microcirculatory defect, and we need tools in the toolbox to adjust it. Is ANG2 one of those tools? Maybe. I don't know. But we certainly, even if it is, we'll need more than that. Because I really think that this idea about SVR macro and how you dial in that macro SVR is not nearly as important as how you resuscitate the microcirculation while defending MAP overall. The Dutch did a very interesting study where they took shock patients and gave them nitroglycerin. 
And when you do that, you actually improve microcirculation. But it's at the cost of systemic MAP, the MAP shows 55, and increases mortality. So what we need is something that allows you to get the microcirculation in better shape, perfuse and organs, avoid all this shunting without losing global pressure. And I think that's the challenge. That was the second question I was going to ask you about. You talked about evolution of biology, but there's really a lot of reason why for millennia these responses and capabilities like um, severe infection of trying to not perfuse cytokines and Oh, no, no. I think it's highly evolved because we were, none of us were built to survive endocarditis. What you and I were all built to survive is a wolf bite actually fighting an animal to get your food because we were all hunters and gatherers originally. And if you think about the local response, you have a compound open fracture. What do you want? You want vasodilatation. You want leak. You want the white cells to get in, and you want capillary tightness and coagulation up so that the contaminated area doesn't contaminate the rest of the body. So locally, everything that happens in sepsis is really good. When it's systemic, it's lethal. And this is an anti-fragile kind of movement. You weren't des designed to survive it. It's a form of apoptosis. Locally, it's good. The host survives a mild to moderate injury. This is my view, obviously. I think this is, makes sense, though. But whereas systemically, you're toast. I mean, most, I don't think there's maladaption. I think this notion of maladaption is completely wrong. And I'll give you a, another example of this. Is that look at Pima Indians, right? So Pima Indians are a hunting and gathering society. They live in the southwest United States of America. And they were hunters and gatherers for like 6,000 years. So the federal government walks in and says, we're going to dam your river. It's called the Gila River. And we're going to put you on a you know, nice little reservation, some concrete slabs. We'll give you three meals a day. Now, Pima Indians have an incredibly high prevalence of the type 2 diabetes gene. It's a thrifty gene. It allows you to pack on fat in times of plenty so that you can survive your starvation time. You put them on a reservation, you give three meals a day, they have a 95% incidence of type 2 diabetes. It kills them. Now, you put that person in Minnesota at Oktoberfest, and they go, look at that fat guy. They're maladaptive. I don't think they're maladaptive. I think it's venue. Right? This happens in uh, Gulf Arabs. This happens in all sorts of areas where hunting and gathering societies have been rapidly moved up into modern society. And if you look at other thrifty genes like hepcidin, which is for iron, what you find is that they co-locate, they move together, and societies that had long-term times of agrarian times, if you look at sort of you know, the whole uh, Jared Diamond, gun germs and steel, those societies, which is essentially Europe and Asia, they actually unload their thrifty genes because they've had multiple generations to do that. And this is all evolution. So I think we have a thoughtful argument or discussion about this, depending on your view. But I don't view any of this stuff as being maladaptive. I think most of this is modernity moving too quickly for our geological evolution. You know, I mean, and, and I think there's a lot of rationale to that because of the efficiency of evolution. I mean, it's all zero sum. And so the reason why things are the way they are is because for a very long time, it served as a survival advantage in that niche. But if that niche changes on you too rapidly, that advantage becomes a massive disadvantage. Yes. Thank you very much for a, a great talk. Do you have a comment on or opinion on what the um, data shows in the Greek short in study looking at the control of sepsis and reduction of 
Yeah, so I mean, my view of this is that the vasopressor itself and whether you have fever or not is highly dependent on the individualization of your care. So if you think about fever and why we have it, right, I think there's a very reasonable and rational reason for it. So I'll give you a good example of this. So if you take mice, okay, and you put them into a large uh, chamber and irradiate them, and you figure out what your LD50, you know, let's say it's 100 gray, just to make up a number. So you say, okay, I'm going to take the same 100 black sick mice. They're all identical. They all have the same background. And I give them the LD50, 100 grays, 50% of them die. If I take those mice and I raise the temperature in their cage to 40 degrees Celsius for half an hour, and then I let them recover, and then I put them in that same cage and give them the same 100 grays, their survival massively improves. And the reason why is because they set off all sorts of alarms, heat shock proteins, HMB, <clears throat> cell cycle arrest markers go off. It's like a hurricane warning. You know, all the plywood goes up, people go and get some milk, they stop dividing cells, you go into a thrifty mode waiting for something bad to happen. I think fundamentally fever is that. Fever is a hurricane warning. Now, the fact that the warning keeps going off as a hurricane is slamming you, I think is background noise. Now, whether that helps you to survive or not, I have no idea. And I think for certain people if, who are metabolically active and that fever increases their metabolism in a bad way, it's a problem. But I am certain there is a genetic background and an exposure that identifies a phenotype in whom that makes sense. It doesn't make sense. So I think that it's an elegant study, but I just have this problem with this giant gamish. You would never do that for cancer. You would never do, you guys don't even do that for pulmonary fibrosis. I mean, you give them all steroids. But that, and once that fails, you still kind of try and do individualization of care. We don't individualize anything in the ICU anymore. Now, you do it clinically. You go in, you're like, this guy's a little bit different. And so we personally, in our individual care, individualize everything. But we do a clinical trial. We throw all the individualization out the door, and we give everyone the same stuff. I, I just think that is so non-Bayesian, it's just not likely to, to, to yield huge gains. And that's a, obviously a massive bias that I have. But it does explain 50 years of failure because we have nothing that's positive, nothing, except for early antibiotics. And that trial will never, was never done as an RCT. That's not even level one data, right? It's a one C, it's a C, early antibiotics, right? I mean, so I think we have to change our approach to our clinical trials if we're gonna have any kind of success. Okay, thanks very much, guys, appreciate it. <laughs>